Well, as we approach the end of our series through the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves gearing up for Easter Sunday, right? We've heard of Christmas in July, so we're doing our own little Easter in June. Because I don't, I don't want to totally spoil the ending, but Jesus doesn't stay dead forever. I said Jesus doesn't stay dead forever. Amen. He is alive, and we think that's a big deal. And so to celebrate this, we want to invite as many of our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and our families to party with us June 13th. June 13th, that's going to be our Easter service. We've got invite cards with all the information on them in the eye center and around the room. So be sure to grab a handful of those on the way out today to invite somebody to celebrate Easter June 13th at all of our campuses. Now, I imagine as you're inviting somebody, somebody might decide to ask you, hey, sounds cool. Why should I come? Why does this matter? What makes you think that I would want to be there? So here's a quick response you could give. Well, there were parts of my life where I thought I was dead and hopeless. My marriage, my job, my, my home, I was dead in my pride, I was an addict. Whatever the story might be, you fill in the blank. It was my tomb. But then I met Jesus. Would you like to get to know Jesus too? And that's it. Just grab a handful of invite cards on the way out, share it as a personal invitation, something like, hey, I used to be dead in blank. What's blank for you? What was that tomb for you? And then you say, look, that was my tomb. It was my tomb until I met Jesus. So join me Easter Sunday. That's it. That's the idea. I'm telling you, that is a story worth sharing, right? That's a story that so many people wish was true for them. So let's be sure to invite as many as we can. Easter in June, we're going to start inviting and start sharing this good news. Well, once again, good morning. My name is Peter. Uh, glad to have you with us today, whether at, uh, here in person or one of our campuses online. We're just delighted to, to get to worship Jesus together. Real quick, as a way uh, kind of segue into our time, I, if you did a quick search online, maybe looking up the most popular songs of all time, or perhaps the most read novels of all time, or really just to see what the most recurring theme throughout all various forms of media and art might be, you will likely find that the common subject written about, most commonly, is love. Love, two love. The search for love, the quest for love, the fight for love, but also on the flip side, the loss of love, the grief of unrequited love, the sting of betrayal by those you love. Love and lost love. Now Adele has got the second half covered. You guys remember her? <laughs> Poor girl. Poor guy, actually. I mean, the dude that broke her heart may have inspired more creativity than perhaps any other jerk in all of history. <laughs> but since it is so intensely human to experience love, that means it's also equally human to experience loss and grief. I'm talking rejection and even 
abandonment. These darker emotions exist on the other side of the coin because to love is, in essence, to open yourself up to the risk and reality of lost love. So what I want us to realize this morning is this. Even Jesus was no exception to this rule. Even Jesus was no stranger to the reality of lost love. We're going to look perhaps at one of the darkest scenes in all the Bible. It took place in a garden. And we're going to observe Jesus as he experienced layer upon layer upon layer of abandonment by those whom he loved most. You can find this in Luke chapter 22. Please turn there with me. Luke 22. We're going to be working our way this morning from roughly verse 39 all the way roughly through the end. We're going to take note of three distinct groups or individuals who each abandoned Jesus in deeper and deeper ways, identifying lessons that we can learn from their stories. And then finally, we're going to look to see how Jesus responds throughout as well. Now, if you've ever been abandoned, or maybe you've been the one to abandon, and you've been wondering, how in the world do I ever move past this pain-filled past? Jesus gives us a powerful example that just may change our life. Luke 22, let's begin now with verses 39 through 46. It reads, then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, If you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done and not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened Jesus. And he prayed all the more earnestly. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. And at last, he stood up again, returned to his disciples only to find them asleep, (laughs) exhausted with grief. Why are you sleeping, he asks them. Get up and pray. The first group that we see abandoning Jesus in this dark hour of his own, this dark night of his own soul, are his disciples. Now granted, it was really late at night. They're praying, right? So, that doesn't necessarily make it easier to stay up. You've ever prayed at night? It's hard to stay awake sometimes. And granted, Jesus was probably really good at praying, a.k.a. long-winded, okay? But the thing is, what I think we're seeing here is a kind of general passivity in the disciples. Because remember, they have been told over and over again by Jesus, it's going down tonight. I'm about to die. My betrayer is coming. (laughs) They're going to crucify me. Like, could he be more explicit? And yet still, Jesus comes to find his disciples asleep. There really is a loneliness that hurts worse than being alone. Actor Robin Williams said this so poignantly. I used to think the worst thing in life was to end up alone. It's not. 
The worst thing in life is to end up with people that make you feel all alone. In this moment, Jesus is experiencing this in depth. Let's keep reading. Verse 47. But even as Jesus said this, the crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And we find out from the other gospel accounts that this crowd with Judas was in essence a military squad, tough-minded, hard-trained for battle, to the point Jesus has to ask this, verse uh, 52, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come to me with swords and clubs to arrest me? And then Jesus just willingly goes with them. Go ahead, take me away. Now, now what I want to zero in on for a moment is the second layer of abandonment that we saw, seen here by none other than Judas himself. Now I feel for Judas because I don't believe for a second that there's this like deep, dark chamber in the lowest pits of hell reserved for him like Dante's Inferno suggests. But I also don't buy into the more modern approach that tries to paint Judas like he was some kind of a hero to be revered as if he's the one that sets salvation on the course by forcing a crucifixion. Like Jesus was gonna die on the cross with or without Judas's help. (laughs) Judas isn't some devil in the story, and he's not some angel either. Judas is simply a man. And this is worth remembering because what that means is the same propensity to sell Jesus out within Judas exists within me too. It exists within you too. And I say it this way because remember... Judas was a disciple, one of the 12, just like Peter or John or Thomas. He walked with Jesus for years. He listened to the teachings. He was even trusted with the benevolence funds. He was sent two by two to evangelize new areas and work miracles just like the rest of them. And that is the significance of that kiss of death, by the way. You know, why a kiss to betray Jesus? Well, it's because a kiss was a typical greeting amongst friends in that day. You turn your cheek as a sign of the relationship and the friendship that you have. You go to the Middle East today, it's the same thing. You greet everyone, it's a kiss on this side, a kiss on that side. Some countries, it's one side and the other. Other countries, it's back and forth. You're like, which one are you? I don't remember. (laughs) So when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, it would have been like being in middle school and your really close friend does your very own secret handshake that signifies the personal depth of your relationship and then being betrayed by that. All of a sudden it becomes clear. Judas isn't some anti-Jesus guy. He's not an atheist like a Richard Dawkins or a Christopher Hitchens, no. Judas is actually John Piper. Judas is Timothy Keller or Pastor Jeff Funderburk or Peter Assad or anyone else in this room that you look up to and you never would have suspected in a million years that they would have done this to Jesus. That's who Judas is. You know, you ever thought, man, I wish I was like them. I wish I had faith like them. That person in your life that you're like, they never would have done it. That's who Judas was. We have that same propensity because Satan is trying to sift all of us like wheat. 
you know, 50 bucks and he'll turn or 100 for her, 1,000 for him, a million bucks, whatever it is. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's a claim or maybe it's recognition or maybe it's someone to notice me or whatever it might be. What's your price? What would you, or perhaps more pointedly, what have we ever betrayed Jesus for? There's a song called What Have We Done by Joe Day that has this haunting lyric. It goes, oh my soul, oh my Jesus, Judas sold you for 30, I'd have done it for less. Judas sold you for 30, but I have done it for less. So first, the disciples are asleep. Now a deep betrayal by a trusted friend and leader, Judas. And we're only just past the halfway mark of the three abandonments. And it's only gonna get even more painful as we're about to see now in verse 54. Let's pick up the story there. So they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at Peter. Finally, she says, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, hey, hey, he says, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looks at him and says, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorts. And about an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter says, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately... It says, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, to understand the significance of what's happening here, we need to consider a conversation that took place between Peter and Jesus just earlier that night. Back up to verse 31, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. It says, Simon, Simon, this is Jesus speaking to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. Now, first notice, Jesus is talking to Peter, but he calls him some other name. What's the other name he calls him? Oh, you got to say that a little louder. What's the name? I can't read my notes. What's the name? Simon, yeah. He says, Simon, why? Well, this goes back three and a half years to the day when Jesus is first calling his disciples to follow him. And on that day, Jesus renames a man named Simon, to who we know as Peter. Because remember, Peter's name used to be Simon, meaning a reed or a blade of grass that blows easily in the wind, versus Peter, which means a rock or a stone, something steadfast and maybe a little hard-headed. Well, when Jesus renames Simon to Peter, he's saying, I see how strong you can be. And I'm renaming you according to the trajectory of who you will one day become. And when we talk around uh, the church here about God making us his kids or how he calls us to be missionaries in his world, like these are statements of identity, statements the scriptures give us of who we are now in Jesus. And they touch on eternal realities. It's it's that, uh, in, in that it's from this renaming of our identity that our that our identity is born and our behavior then grows from that. It's from that identity of who we now are that our behavior starts to change. And that's what it was like for Peter. But as we see here, 
it's not always so neat and clean, right? Take a couple steps forward, several steps back, a step forward, up going the wrong way. Like, that's the walk of faith at times. Because here when we see Jesus referring to Peter now again as Simon, it's a warning. And maybe even a reminder that although Peter is stronger than he used to be, he still has some of those reed-like tendencies. Satan knows this, Jesus says, and so he's trying to get you next. So that's the warning. But listen to Peter's response in verse 33. Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. Man, you wouldn't expect anything less from Peter, right? He is just the right amount of stubborn and headstrong to remain loyal and fight for those he loves. But still, verse 34, Jesus warns, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And sure enough, immediately after Peter denies and disowns Jesus for that third time, the rooster crows, it's morning. And verse 61 picks up with, it, with the scene like it's something straight out of Hollywood. Really envision this. It says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Like across the span of a million faces in a crowd, their eyes somehow meet. And suddenly, it says, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You will deny three times that you even know me. And it says, Peter went out weeping bitterly. Now, what do you think Peter's tears mean here? Were they tears of shame and embarrassment? I can't believe Jesus saw me deny him. Were they tears of fear? Like, oh no, he, what's he gonna say? What's he gonna do with me? Like, what do the tears mean? A practice I found personally, personally helpful whenever I'm experiencing a strong emotion of any kind is to consider what does it mean? Like, what's going on? What's at the root? What's underneath it all? What do the tears mean? Because not all tears mean the same thing, right? Like, sometimes we cry for joy. Sometimes we cry because we've got allergies or somebody's cutting onions in the next room over. Now, more seriously, sometimes we cry because we're overwhelmed or because we're frustrated or disillusioned. So what do these tears mean? And I'd like to suggest that given the context here, you know, given Peter's assertion that he will remain faithful even if it means death in prison, and then given the hollowness of his words made abundantly clear once the rooster crows and he did the deed three times, I believe that Peter's tear-filled outburst is likely an indicator of a disappointment with himself. How could I do this? I never thought I would have done it. Thomas, sure. Judas, yeah, you always kind of sketch. John, why not? But me, I never thought it could happen to me. See, Peter is disappointed with himself. But he's disappointed with himself because of his overconfidence in his own ability to stay the course. 
And then one more piece, bear all of this in mind with the request Jesus made to Peter and the other disciples to pray so that they would not fall into temptation. And so, so as, I'm, as I'm sitting with all these ideas and they're rolling around in my head, a thought emerged. I think Peter is displaying a sin that we don't tend to think of as a sin very much. And that's the sin of overconfidence. Specifically, overconfidence in our own ability to stay the course. You know, believe in yourself, have positive thoughts about yourself. Like, that's what the culture tells us. But, but think about this. We've seen it so many times. Texts turn into phone calls, turn into secret rendezvous until one day you find yourself on the other side of the bed of someone who isn't your spouse staring at the ceiling thinking, I never thought it could have been me. Riches turn to rags. COVID's been a really difficult year, and so you've got mouths to feed, so you start making some shady business deals that land you in jail for a while, and you're baffled. You're like, really? Me? It happened to me? Like a disappointment with ourselves, born from this place of it never could have happened to me until one day it does. Peter found himself there. And in this moment, as his eyes meet the one whose life, his life was not reflecting very well, it says he runs out and he weeps bitterly. Are we so confident in ourselves that we are unwilling to believe the worst in ourselves? Are we so confident in ourselves that we are unwilling to believe the worst in ourselves as possible. Now, I know that's not popular to say, but I have personally found that the primary reason I fall is because I'd wrongly convinced myself that I never would. And yet the scriptures tell us even youths grow tired and weary. Don't be so overconfident in your ability to withstand temptation. Instead, pray that you would not give in. Become aware, we must become aware of our propensity to become a Judas, to become a Peter. Becky Pipert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, says this so well. Here is where we must part company decisively with our contemporary culture. It tells us to ignore our self-doubts and to feel only positive thoughts about ourselves. I am saying the opposite. Pay attention to those lurking doubts. Listen closely to that nagging discontent. Yes, it is important to have healthy self-esteem, but the irony is that the best road to health lies in the direction of realism about the sickness. Those who want the last in their lives to be the best must face the worst first. It is only in giving up on ourselves that we can go beyond ourselves and find ourselves. There's wisdom there. I remember talking with a friend of mine recently about the idea that, you know, Judas wasn't some anti-Jesus guy. He was, he was a Jesus guy. And as we're talking about this and how I have the propensity to be like a Judas, he stops me. He interrupts me and he says, but Peter, okay, okay, I get that as a sermon application, but you don't really mean that, do you? Like, you're not actually Judas. You wouldn't actually betray Jesus, but I cannot see it any other way. Judas is just as much in me as he is in Judas himself. 
I am just as prone as Peter to Peter out. You'll get that one later. We have to stop thinking that we're beyond or better than or above any kind of evil as if evil was just something out there. But it's not how it is. Evil is just as much in here, too. Russian author and historian Alexander Solzhenitsyn says it like this. If only it were all so simple. If only... There were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Peter's tears of disappointment came as a rude awakening, as the result of thinking too highly of his own resolve and the ability to withstand temptation initially. I never thought it could be me. I never thought it would have happened to me. I can't believe that it happened to me. Well, believe it. Believe it. Because whether it's the disciples sleeping or it's Judas betraying or it's Peter disowning, you and I have just as much propensity to abandon Jesus as anyone. But I want you to see something. Can I give you some good news? Before Jesus ever had a single disciple, the scriptures tell us he spent the whole night in prayer with God, asking the Father to give him the names of the specific people who would become his 12 disciples. And yet he knew full well, don't you think, the risk of lost love that awaited him. You know, this guy's gonna betray me. This guy's gonna doubt me. This guy, man, no one's gonna remember him. His name's Bartholomew. <laughs> this guy's gonna disown me. Like he knew what awaited him and yet he chose the 12 anyway. Jesus chose them. And what I want you to hear this morning is Jesus chose you. He chose you, Ephesians 1 tells us, before the foundation of the world. He chose you that you would be with him. He chose you that you would be like him. He chose you and nothing that you do or neglect to do will ever change that fact. It's why after seeing his disciples asleep for the third time, the other gospels tell us, Jesus would still invite them to get up and pray so they wouldn't fall in temptation. It's why you hear his shepherd heart coming through his words to Judas. He says, Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? Like, do you hear it? He's not reaming Judas out. He's actually giving Judas an out. Even in the midst of this betrayal, he's like, Judas, is this really what you want to do? And how fitting is it that the one who taught us to turn the other cheek would knowingly give his cheek in greeting to the kiss of betrayal. And even in the conversation with Peter, where Jesus lines out the fact that Peter is about to bail on him in less than a day's time, Jesus still says this in verse 32, that I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when, he says when, not if, 
But when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Like Jesus knew abandonment was coming and still he's like, Peter, I've chosen you. And even though you're about to disown me, I never will disown you. And I've still got a purpose for you, Peter. See, there is always opportunity to repent and turn back to Jesus. I'm gonna say that again. There is always opportunity to repent and turn back to Jesus. There is nothing you or I could ever do to force Jesus to say, you know what, forget it, scrap it, that's too much. Nope, there's nothing. Because when Jesus chooses us, when he handpicks us, he says, it's for keeps. It's for keeps. Today's sermon kind of feels like it has one objective. It's to be what I would describe as the rooster's crow. That's the purpose, the rooster's crow of conviction. The rooster's crow that alerts us to consider how we've failed to live up to our lofty promises of faithfully following Jesus. Because we've all failed at it before, right? We've all been found asleep on the job, as it were. We've all sold Jesus for less than what he's worth. We've disowned him and made it seem absolutely implausible that we're even Christ followers. Like if there was a trial for who's a Christian, who's not, and they were accused of being Christians, and they would stack the evidence up, would they find enough evidence to say, yeah, totally, he's a Christian, she's a Christian? Like we would even fail that at times. And yet here's the one thing I love most about the Bible. The scriptures make no attempt, zero attempt to cover up the, short, uh, the shortcomings of its heroes. You ever notice that? Like we know all about the sins of Moses and David, don't we? We know about the failures of Peter and Paul and Jacob and the rest of them. Sin doesn't disqualify you as a disciple of Jesus. Peter denied Jesus, but we find out later in the story that he's forgiven and he's brought back in, he's restored, and yet contrast that with Judas, though, who determines for himself to end his own story rather than returning back to Jesus. And what I'm saying is this, don't quit on the one who won't quit on you. Don't quit on the one who will never, ever, ever quit on you. Instead, like Peter, when we hear the roosters crow, yes, may we weep bitterly for a while, but don't for a second think that Jesus has given up on you. He hasn't. He hasn't. He's not done with you yet. And Jesus finishes what he starts. He never sets aside whom he has set apart. So don't quit. Instead, let the rooster's crow of conviction signal the time to turn back to him. The rooster's crow doesn't signal the end of the journey. It instead helps us to get back on track. So what I'd like to do this 
this morning is transition our time now to a time of reflection and response. We're, we're going to do, uh, we're going we're to have three different stations at all the campuses. One for reflection, one for communion, and one for prayer. Different stations all around the room, different elements we're going to participate in. Um, here's the first. There, there are stations you'll find around the room for reflection. These little mirrors, you'll find them there. These are our gifts to you. We want you to take them with you. And, and as you do, I want you to look at yourself in that mirror and use it as a time to consider, my goodness, where, where have I fallen short in the last year? Where have I missed the mark in the last month? What about the last week? And, and allow yourself, like Peter, if need be, to weep bitterly over those sins. But then, I want you to look deeper and I want you to consider, whose image were you made to bear? We were made to bear the image of Christ. And then, from that place of sorrow, instead, turn it into a time of gratitude as you consider the cross of Christ. As you see Jesus hanging there on that cross, and you envision that empty tomb, and you remember, he chose me. And let this time of reflection drive you into the arms of Jesus. Next, you'll find the Lord's Supper little prepackaged cups. The top, you peel back for the bread. The bottom, you peel for the juice. This reminds us of the body and blood of the one who stood in our place. Amen? We were condemned, weren't we? And yet he took that condemnation on himself. We chose to leave God, and yet in Jesus we find a God who comes for us. He took the nails so we could go free. He bore the curse so we could enjoy his blessing. He died the death that we deserved so we could live in the resurrected life that he has earned. And so that's what we see in this meal through the bread and the cup. We hear the words of Jesus, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Jesus offered himself freely to us so we could be made whole. For by his wounds we have been healed. And so if you see Jesus today as your hope in life and in death, then I encourage you at this time of reflection, visit the station for the Lord's Supper and remember your Lord and Savior, Jesus. And finally, we're going to have prayer people designated around the room as well to join you in a time of prayer. Because perhaps it's been years since you've prayed, like really, really prayed. This is like the disciples So many of us have been asleep. But our passage this morning reminds us of the urgency of the mission that he has called us to join him in. Because there are co-workers in our life who've yet to know him, right? There are children in our families who do not yet know Jesus. There are parents and neighbors in our our homes and, and in our streets that do not yet know him. And you're done being passive about it. Today's a stake in the ground kind of a day. I want them to hear about Jesus and you're ready to speak to them, but you find yourself afraid. If that's the case, then visit these prayer warriors in this room. Because they're going to join you and do battle for you. 
right now. And I want you to to think of a specific person perhaps that you want the Lord to reach, someone in your life, someone that he just keeps bringing to your mind, someone who right now you're thinking, that person, I don't know if I could speak to that person. I don't know if I should invite that person. Them, mention their name to these prayer partners and they're gonna do battle with you and for you and pray. This would be a great time to pray by name for the people that you intend to invite to Easter Sunday in June. So those are the three stations. The band's going to come up now. And they're going to sing over us in this time of response. But I invite you instead, yes, if you want to sing, you can. But really, this is a time to travel around the room, to the different tables around the room, the different stations, and, 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 and respond with the, vision, uh, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the reflection, and the time of prayer. Allow yourself now to be caught up in that dark and painful night and find that the rooster's crow is a call back to Jesus. So that like Peter, when our eyes meet our Lord's, it would do something in our heart and it would draw us back to him. So I'm gonna pray for us and then let's get up and respond. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that just as, just as Peter experienced when he saw the Lord and he felt that disappointment with himself. I imagine there's some of us in this room right now who feel that same disappointment who are looking at times in their life, choices in their life. Maybe it's just been a a slow, gradual decline in their walk, or maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been years since they've really had a conversation with you because they're concerned that you're upset with them, because they're afraid that you're gonna wanna get uh, get back at them. But I pray that even in this time, Lord, that you would teach us that you are not trying to get back at us, but you're actually trying to bring us back to you. May this time of response lead us to worship. We don't want to wallow in our sin, God. We want to see it for what it is. We want to call it for what it is. We want to confess it to you. And we want to remember how you bridged the gap on the cross for us. Lord Jesus, you you hung there suspended between heaven and earth. And your words of, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Those words still ring today in our hearts. We want to believe them. We want to know that we can be forgiven and that we can be set free from these things that have gotten in the way of our walk with you. And then, Lord, would you send us out with such a fire and a boldness? May we never be silent of what we have seen and heard because we saw how our lives were in the tomb, how our pride was killing us, how our grief was drowning us. We saw how all these things were keeping us back. But Lord, you made a way through the cross. You made a way through Jesus' sacrifice that now we can be set free. Now we can be set free. And we want to see our friends brought to you. And we want to see our families brought to you. And we want to see our neighborhoods and our worlds brought to you. 
And so do this in us and through us, we pray in this time right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit that is still raising the dead to life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.